This evening's reading is Judges chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 5 and that can be found on page 242 of the Church Bibles. That's page 242 and Judges chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 5. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. They have given the Lord the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adoni Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fell, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him into Jerusalem, and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hell country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day, when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? She replied, Do me a special favour. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore it was called Hormah. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove it from the three sons of Anak. The Benjaminites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites, who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjaminites. Now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. 
He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to its day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan, or Tanakh, or Dor, or Ibleam, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labour, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gaza, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalol. So these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulun did subject them to forced labour. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Alab or Azkib or Helbar or Aphek or Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaan inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath, but the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land, and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labourers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain, and the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Heres, Ajalon, and Shalbim, but when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labour. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bokim. Then they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Hi, everybody. Um, at the start of a new year, uh, January can feel a little bit of an anticlimax after Christmas. Um, but I've got to admit, starting Judges, I'm feeling pretty hyped. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Judges has got some of the most compelling stories in the whole Bible. You've got um, Ehud, the left-handed assassin, jail and a hammer. Um, you've got um, uh, Gideon and his 300, not Gerard Butler, and Samson tearing apart a lion with his bare hands. Like, these stories are going to be admittedly gruesome at times, and by the end, it's going to actually become horribly dark, but I think it's going to be quite fun along the way. They're great stories, but they're so much more than great stories, because this isn't just a book of um, historical facts or tall tales. On every single page, we have a Holy Spirit-inspired message. The events of this book are told in such a way to drive home a point, and that point is going to help us worship God for who he is, we're going to find out more about his character, and that point is going to help us to live for Jesus better, more faithfully in our everyday lives. Here are three things to expect between now and Easter as we look at the book of Judges. Um, the first, we're going to be reminded just how much humanity needs King Jesus. We're going to be reminded just how much humanity needs King Jesus the book starts with a leadership vacuum. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, in the first verse of chapter one, 
Um, who of us is going to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? Joshua has died, and, and so there's this, there's this void, there's this gap. Who's going to go first? And if you, um, if you flick to the very end of the book, you'll find that the same leadership vacuum remains. Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everything in between shows just how desperately Old Testament Israel needed a righteous, good leader. And that's the story of all humanity too. 21st century, broken UK society needs King Jesus. We, as God's church, need King Jesus. If you're ever tempted to take King Jesus for granted, you need this book. Um, That's the first thing to expect. The second thing to expect is we'll be warned against canonization. I'm going to use that word quite a lot, canonization. Hopefully it'll become apparent what that means as we go along. There's a line from Star Wars that I enjoy. You were supposed to destroy the Sith, not join them. And that's sadly applicable to Old Testament Israel here. Canaan was a land of murderous, violent, oppressive, idolatrous child sacrifices. They'd been that way since the time of Abraham. God had given them 400 years to change their ways, but they only got worse. So Israel was sent in to deliver God's righteous judgment and to reclaim the land that was promised to them. In the words of Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord your God... Technology error. Oh, this could be interesting. We might be going noteless. That's interesting. See if it wakes up in a minute. Um, uh, It talks about how uh, when the Lord your God gives that land into your hands, you've got to go in and utterly destroy it. Give me a couple of minutes and I'll see if I can uh, recover notes mode. That would be really, really useful. Otherwise, this will go very interesting. (laughs) <laughs> it's still doable, but it just might be very interesting, <laughs> or not very interesting, <laughs> as, as it goes. Um, that's the second thing. Um, we're going to expect Ca- uh, to be warned against Canaanization. They were sent in to destroy the Canaanites, but actually they ended up just joining them. And uh, that was a real, real tragedy. And of course, that was their story, but we're in danger of that becoming our story as well. Because the danger of canonization is a very real and present danger for each one of us. We need to take that warning seriously. There's a third thing to expect uh, in the book of Judges, but I'm going to save that to the end just to keep you listening. Um, And that's a really good one. Now, um, focusing on chapter one and the first bit of chapter two that we've got this evening, um, I don't blame you if you got a little bit lost Uh, As we were going along, there's a lot of details in there, and it's really hard to keep track. But what we're going to do that I think is going to help is we're going to put a few maps up on the screen. And I'm sorry if you're not a geography fan, but that is going to be kind of helpful to keep track of what we're doing. So let's kick off. We'll put the first map on there. And uh, you can see, I'm, I'm sorry, some of the writing is a little bit small, but we can see that Shechem is highlighted there. Now, why is Shechem highlighted? Um, Because that's where the story starts. Before Judges, we've got the book of Joshua. 
And uh, Joshua is the story of how um, after God had called Egypt out of slavery in Egypt, after they'd wandered through the wilderness, Israel went into the promised land and they were told to conquer. And their leader throughout that time had been the faithful man, Joshua, Joshua uh, of Jericho fame. And um, we come to the end of Joshua, chapter 23 and 24. And there he gathers the leaders and then all the tribes of Israel at this place, Shechem. And he reminds the leaders of just how faithful their God has been to them. And he reminds the people to stick close uh, to him. He has been, their God has been so good to them. Why would you leave him now? Um, I love what Joshua says in verse 14 of chapter 23. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. And then he goes on to reaffirm that. Your God has been so good to you. Complete the mission. Don't give up on him. Stay close to him. But as Judges starts, Joshua has died. So what's going to happen? This faithful man who has been so good to Israel, he is no more. What are Israel going to do now? Well, exactly what they were supposed to do. Because though they've lost Joshua, they still have everything they need to complete the mission. All right, I'm going to do one more 30-second attempt to recover my notes. If we don't, that's totally fine. Bear with me a second. This is an argument in favor of paper notes. Oh, look, we have them back. And I haven't gone too far off track. That's excellent. Okay. All right, even though they lost the faithful old, old Saint Joshua, Israel still had everything they needed for the mission. Um, some critics love to paint the conquest of Canaan as a kind of genocide. Um, that's not very accurate at all. Yes, it was God's righteous judgment on wicked people, but it was really more a way of breaking an oppressive culture, an oppressive way of life, and ridding the land of idol worship. God promised his people a land where they could live with him and worship him alone. And that was only going to happen when the Canaanites were driven out. And God gave them absolutely everything they needed for the task. Look at verse 2. There they have divine assurance. Verse 2 says, I have given the land into their hands. Look at verse 4. There they experience divine power. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands. And in verse 19, if you can see there, they had divine presence. The Lord was with the men of Judah. Assurance, power, and presence. Israel didn't have Joshua, but they did have God. Uh, that same um, gracious God who chose Abraham's family to bless the whole world, that same mighty God who defeated and humiliated all the so-called gods of Egypt so that he could rescue his people, the same all-powerful God who turned the walls of Jericho into dust. So be in no doubt 
when God calls his children to a mission, a task, he always goes with them. He always equips them for the job that needs doing. When he saves, he doesn't leave the rest of the job up to us. He goes with us. Israel had lost Joshua, but they had everything they needed for the mission. And that's what they learned at Shechem. And now for the rest of the chapter, what we're going to do is just go from south to north, and we're going to see how successful Israel was in this mission. Um, You can see the names of some of the tribes there, and those are the ones that are mentioned throughout the chapter. Um, Let's go on to the next slide, because in verses 3 to 20, we read about Judah. And they're mostly highlighted in green there because initially they seem to do a really quite good job. Straight away, um, they make a deal with another tribe, uh, the Simeonites. You fight with us and we'll fight with you. And in Judges, one of the features of Israel's sad descent is their steady fragmentation. As the book goes on, they stop acting together as God's people. They separate into tribes and And then they start fighting amongst one another as tribes, and finally everyone's kind of doing their own thing. But right at the start here, we have two tribes working together to great effect in the Lord's power. It's a great argument for the importance of Christian unity. They win great victories at Bezek and then Jerusalem um, in verses 4 and 8. And they also capture a king, Adonai Bezek, who recognizes God's judgment Um, verse 7. See what he says there? Um, This was a potential uh, backup plan for the title slide of the series. Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up the scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. Um, It is a a gruesome book at times, as I said. Um, But he recognized God's judgment, uh, God's righteous judgment in that event. Uh, Having won these victories, Judah continues to collect their inheritance further south. You can see the word Negev there, that literally just means south. They capture many cities because the Lord was with them. And then in verses 12 to 15, we have a really interesting kind of mini story which highlights just how good things could have gone if everyone was faithful. Um, This is about Caleb. He was a friend of Joshua, one of the spies that went into the land and said, God's with us, we can do this. Um, and Caleb's family there, well, they, um, they win a battle, they have a wedding, they move into a new home, and they put a pool in the back garden. Um, it goes really, really well for them. And if only everyone else was so faithful, maybe the same would be true for the whole of Israel. Um, if only the rest of the story went so well, because Judah weren't completely successful. There are a couple of question marks next to some of the events there. Why was Adonai Bezek allowed to live out the rest of his days in Jerusalem? Was that potentially dangerous? Could he have exerted significant influence there? Um, Another question mark, was it really right for the the Kenites, the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, to enter the land and live next to Israel there? Don't know. Could they have been uh, dangerous influences if they didn't worship God. And then there were outright failures too. Uh, Verse 19 tells of how they failed to drive out people from the plains because they had chariots fitted 
with iron. But if you're trusting in divine assurance, power, and presence, I really don't care what your chariots are made of. You don't stand a chance. So that's, that's just a failure. From there, that's Judah. We're going to start heading north now. So let's click onto the next slide and see Benjamin. That's the next one highlighted there. They end up living, in verse 21, with the Jebusites in Jerusalem. So they haven't been very successful there either. Um, click on one more slide, because in verses 22 and 20, uh, 20 to 29, we've got the tribes of Joseph. Um, that's the two we've just highlighted there. The sons of Joseph that led tribes, Ephraim and then Manasseh. Um, Ephraim, they destroy Bethel, but they allow one man to uh, get off lightly. And, and maybe that's okay, but then that man just goes and sets up another Hittite city in Ephraim territory. So they haven't really achieved anything. They've taken out one Canaanite city, but created another one. Not so successful. Um, and Manasseh as well, uh, probably even less successful. You can see them highlighted in or orange rather than green. Um, they drive some people out, but not completely. And even when they become strong, what do they do? They don't drive people out then. They just subject them to forced labor. Um, not so good. And of course, the same is true if you look at verse 30, Zebulun. They failed to drive out some Canaanites, and so they allowed them to live among them instead. And uh, they also copied the financially savvy tactic of Manasseh in rather than driving them out when they became strong, just subject them to forced labor. But, but actually, wasn't, didn't I say oppression was part of the problem in Canaan that Israel was sent in to sort out? This doesn't sound so good. Uh, we're moving on, more tribes further north. Let's click on. We've got Zebulun coming up next. Uh, Zebulun, um, oh, we mentioned those. Let's click one more on, and we're going to see Asher and Naphtali. Notice how with Asher, their Canaanite cohabitation is the other way round. So the Canaanites lived among the Israelites in Zebulun, but Asher live among the Canaanites. There's been a switch there, and we don't get any indication that they've even tried to drive any of them out. Same is true of Naphtali. And finally, we've made our way right to the top. One more click, and that's Dan in red, right at the top. Sorry if your name is Dan and you're here, because um, you guys are the worst. Um, not just in this chapter, but in the whole book. Um, Though they've got the mighty God on their side, where are they? They are stuck up in the hills, trembling, lest a single Amorite might see them stray out of their cave. They have utterly failed in the mission God gave them, the mission that God equipped them for as well. Those are the events of chapter 1. We don't get comment on them until we come to chapter 2, and that's why we're straying into the first five verses there this evening. We're going to click on, because um, rather than this lovely map here, we're going to focus in on a place called Bokim. Verse 1 of chapter 2 tells us that the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bokim to deliver God's word to the Israelites. I wonder why the author bothered to say that. 
why did the Holy Spirit think it was important for that bit to include that the angel of the Lord left um, Gilgal and went to Bokim? Um, Gilgal, it was a small town just west of Jordan, very near to Jericho. And in Joshua chapter 5, it was the place where the people renewed their covenant with the Lord their God. Gilgal was the place where after years and years in the wilderness, God forgave the people their sins and rebound himself to that people in love. If the angel of the Lord had spoken to the people in Gilgal, that would have evoked some quite positive memories. That would have been quite reassuring. Maybe things are going to be okay. But leaving Gilgal was intended to give the opposite effect. I wonder how the people would have assessed their work in chapter 1. Maybe they'd acknowledge that some progress was needed, but generally they'd probably say that they were heading in the right direction. Just give us a little bit of time. Certainly Judah, Simeon, and maybe Ephraim might be feeling pretty pleased with themselves. Seven out of ten for obedience, something like that. But God's assessment is really quite scathing. Verse 2. I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. In his great love, in his magnificent grace, he saved them out of Egypt and gave them this land. God told them to break down the altars of the Canaanites, but instead they just joined them. We might want to give some of those tribes a 7 out of 10. But obedience to God doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. He wanted Israel to clear out the whole of Canaan so that they could live with him alone. Not distracted by any of the other altars and idol worshippers. He wants lordship over the whole of our lives. Not just 70% of it. You can't be... 70% faithful to someone. Either you're faithful to them or you're not. And the northern tribes, they might have had the excuse, well, we tried, but we just couldn't. We tried to drive them out, but we, we just couldn't. That doesn't work either. Again, God's assessment leaves no room for excuses. Ability wasn't ever the problem. Obedience was. They say, we could not. God says you would not. They say we could not. God says you would not. And so in verse 3, God delivers the consequences of their disobedience. And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. And all the people weep. The angel of the Lord has left Gilgal, that place of covenant renewal and and moved to this place of weeping. That's what Bokim means. How tragic. All the people weep. So as chapter 1 draws to a close, I hope you can tell that Old Testament Israel here is in a really dangerous position. They haven't been Canaanized yet. They haven't been made like the other tribes yet. They haven't started worshipping other gods yet. But they've cozied up to a wicked, idolatrous, oppressive culture. 
They've made themselves at home in this world. They've allowed corrupting influences to hold key strategic positions in their lives and in the land. They've sown the seeds of their own rotten harvest that is to come. And that's the warning for us. That's the big point for us this evening. Are you getting ready to be canonized? Are you getting ready to be corrupted by the ungodly world around us? In this chapter, there are two sure paths that we could take to be canonized. The first is to be satisfied with seven out of ten obedience. We are God's people, his new covenant people, the church, and our relationship to the world around us is very different to that of Old Testament Israel. Um, For us, obeying God doesn't mean driving everyone away. That's just not what we're about. Um, We are called to uh, be lights out there in the middle of the dark world. We're called to have our front doors of our homes open to people that don't know Jesus yet. And we love it when this room is filled with people that are hearing the good news, the gospel for the first time. Our job isn't to drive people away, but we absolutely must break down their altars. We absolutely must get rid of all corrupting influences in our church and in our lives. Those influences are going to be different for each one of us. Have you conquered the hill territory of uh, um, whatever, (laughs) but left an altar of comfort to stand in the plains? Have you defeated the outposts of sexual temptation, but allowed a friend to build a city of worship of prosperity right next to you? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that all of us have some work to do on this when we get home. We all have interests in a world that God created to be good, and that's a good thing. Like if you can enjoy a really nice piece of steak and not give in to gluttony and go down that path, wonderful. Enjoy that to the glory of God. If you can enjoy um, a good piece of music and not be dragged into a worldly way of seeing the world, wonderful. Enjoy that. You know, we're we're supposed to be enjoying this world that God has made for us. We do have to do some rigorous work evaluating it by the categories of the gospel, but we do want to enjoy this world to the glory of God. However, I think we all have influences that are dangerous in our lives, that have the potential to corrupt us. Drive them out. Unfollow that YouTube channel. Put some distance between you and that friend that is dragging you down. Take that book off your shelf. Stop watching that TV series. I think many of us are going to relate to those southern tribes, to be honest. I think many of us are going to be largely in the green. But if you're satisfied with 7 out of 10 obedience, you are in terrible danger. Don't leave any altars standing. Every single brick needs to go. The first sure path to being canonized is being satisfied with seven out of ten obedience. 
And the second part is to say, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. That was Israel's perspective, wasn't it? Um, They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people of the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. They said they could not, but God's verdict was they would not. And just like them, we have everything we need to tear down every single altar. The Lord is with us in a way that Israel did not know. We have Jesus our divine assurance, Jesus, our divine power, Jesus, our divine presence. You know, what greater assurance of God's love, what greater assurance that God is on your side could you possibly have than knowing that he sent his son to this world to become one of us to die for you? That is the assurance that God is with you on your side in this. What greater proof of God's power could you want than Jesus' resurrection? That very same power that brought Jesus up from the grave is at work in you as you fight your battles. That power that lifted Jesus to new life is at work in you to give you new life in every battle that you face. And what greater proof can we have than Jesus for God's presence? Emmanuel, as we've been celebrating over the past month. He's given us his spirit dwelling in us, empowering us, in every fight, we have even less excuse than the Israelites. We have superior divine assurance, divine power, divine presence. The problem is never our ability. The problem is our obedience. And that's not saying it's going to be easy to tear down these altars. It's going to be such hard work for us. God has loved us so much. It is so worth it. And here's the question for us to really take home and think about. It's not a comfortable question. What future fall are you sowing the seeds of today? What future fall are you sowing the seeds of today? Israel hadn't been Canaanized yet, but they'd sown the seeds, they'd prepared the path, and they were in terrible danger. I'd hate for any of us to be in a similar position. That's the warning. Are you getting ready to be Canaanized? And that's the start of Judges. In the next term, we're going to be reminded just how much humanity needs King Jesus We're going to be warned against canonization as we've started along that track today. And here's the final thing uh, to expect in this book that I've been saving since the start. We're going to see God's surprising salvation. The stories are going to get worse and worse as we go through. Israel are going to cozy up closer and closer to Canaanite society. But time and time again, God is going to send a deliverer. Time and time again. Some of these deliverers are going to be unlikely champions. Some of these deliverers are going to be pretty corrupt themselves. But the only hero in this book is going to be God. We're going to see that he uses unlikely leaders to rescue undeserving people. The hero is not Samson or Deborah. The hero is God himself and his gloriously surprising salvation, even for canonized people like us. Where we fail, 
Like, yes, I'm saying seven out of ten obedience is, is, is not to be satisfied with. But when we fail, be assured that you can always turn to the hero of the story. Christ Jesus, who has obeyed perfectly in our place so that we might be accepted to the, in, in the Father. And so that we might go on this mission and live with the Lord wholeheartedly. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you love us, love us enough to warn us. We pray that you would show us now where there are dangerously unhelpful influences in our lives. Please forgive us for our half-hearted obedience. Please help us to follow you wholeheartedly. Thank you that as we've been singing about today, you are wholehearted in your devotion to us. Thank you that you have sent the deliverer, Jesus Christ, to obey perfectly and to give us a home with you forever. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our final song, um, again, sings of divine love, reminding us that we, are, we have been saved if we're trusting in Christ. But it also reminds us that that divine love is a motivation to fight sin, um, take away the love of sinning, Alpha and Omega B. Let's sing Love Divine. Wow.